You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this fifth lecture now, we're going to turn to the subject of metaphysics. The tradition of spending most of the time talking about the possibility of metaphysics and getting ready to do it, and seemingly putting it off endlessly, was established by Aristotle himself in the 14 books of his metaphysics. I've mentioned that sort of haunting phrase that he uses to describe what he's doing, the science that we are seeking. And it has that elusive sense, and it ought to. If Aristotle is right, what we are doing here now is trying to extrapolate beyond the area of things that is knowledge of which comes more easily to us, that is the sensible things around us. And that prepares us for what might be a bit of a surprise when we turn now to Aristotle's discussion of the subject of metaphysics. He set this up, you remember, in such a way that we will have our attention focused on substance being as said in many ways, but the primary way, the primary sense of being, the primary being is substance. So a science of being as being will adequately concentrate on substance itself. Now given everything that we've said about the different mode of defining metaphysics as opposed to that of mathematics and philosophy of nature, that they define with matter or in such a way that the objects are not assumed to exist apart from matter, and metaphysics defines its objects, its subject, without any matter. When we turn to the discussion of substance, we perhaps would be expecting Aristotle to say, well, let's talk about immaterial substance. He doesn't do that at all. What he does is to say, let's talk about substance, and then he begins to talk about physical substance. And this has puzzled people often because they wonder if he's just incorporating huge swatches from his earlier natural philosophical writings. And what's the point of this? Why is he spinning his wheels in this way? Why is it that in order to talk about substance, in order to achieve a definition of substance that does not include matter, which then would make the term substance applicable to things that exist apart from matter, why? does he concentrate and spend the time that he does on physical substance? The answer, of course, is the only way he is going to be able to get a controlled sense of substance that is going to be a different sense than that which does apply to sensible substance is by concentrating, first of all, on them. So any effort to talk about the metaphysical for Aristotle is going to be grounded on the physical. It's not as if he's just going to say, well, we talked about physical objects, let's talk about non-physical objects or immaterial objects and just start talking about them. The only way he has come into secure knowledge that there are such things is by arguments that took place within the philosophy of nature. So to any effort to extrapolate our vocabulary or our knowledge beyond the realm of the physical is going to entail a new look at physical substance. And that's exactly what we get in those books devoted to substance in the metaphysics of Aristotle, book seven and book eight. It's what we find in the little summary of metaphysics that Thomas wrote as a young man on being and essence. 
what we find ourselves being presented with, first of all, is material substance, the essence of material thing, physical substance. Okay, let's look at the analysis, first of all, that Aristotle incorporates now of physical substance and see what he does with it in a metaphysical context that will tell us an awful lot about his conception of the science that he is seeking. The structure of physical being is something that Aristotle established at the very outset of physics. Having looked at what his predecessors brought forward as an account of physical reality, that is, reality that comes to be as a result of a change, which while it exists is subject to all kinds of different changes, and which ultimately as a result of a very definitive change will simply cease to be. Aristotle, first of all, recounted all of the things that his predecessors had had to say about change, the physical world, nature, and what we would perhaps think when we look at the theories that he's put before us, and we wouldn't know anything about them if he hadn't gone into this little effort in the history of philosophy. After he's detailed these theories, which all look wildly different from one another, Aristotle says they all have a kind of background set of assumptions. Despite all of their middle distance and surface differences, there's lurking in them some common conceptions that it would be well to extract. And he does. And he says, no matter what they've said by way of, well, air is the ultimate source of all things, and its rarefaction and condensation is the explanation of the arrival and departure of macrocosmic things, or it's water, or it's the four elements, or what have you, no matter what particular theory they put forward, involved in each of them, minimally is this, there must be, in order for there to be change, there must be a subject which from not having a certain characteristic comes to have that characteristic. Now Aristotle is perfectly willing, particularly at the beginning of an analysis, to say what is painfully obvious. And he wants it to be obvious because at this level he wants us to listen to him and say, yeah, I know that. I understand that. I knew that before you said it. I might not have said it, articulated it, but once you articulate it, there is the shock of recognition. I know that. So at the outset, that's just exactly the kind of response that Aristotle is hoping for, that what he is saying is very obvious. And the things that he says about it, maybe you and I wouldn't have said untutored, but as soon as he says them, they seem right to us. Now, what he's going to do after he has extracted from the many opinions of his predecessors that he has listed at the outset of his natural philosophy is to come up now with his own account and he's going to perform an analysis on a change out of which will emerge the principles of change and the constituents of the product of a change. And he's going to do this, as he's prepared us to see, at a level of glittering generality. He's going to do it at a level such that what he has to say will be secure and it will apply to everything. So it's not going to tell us a lot about the differences between this kind of physical object and that, but it's going to give us a starting point. And we can say, what we mean by a physical object is something that has come to be as the result of a change. What do you mean by a change? By a change, I mean blah, blah, blah. What do you mean by the constituents of what has come to be as a result of a change? I mean this and that. So Aristotle gives us his own analysis. It's an analysis on the level as close to common sense as a philosophical analysis can be. And first of all, he just takes an example of change. And he could have taken any. And it's got to be a particular example, of course. 
but he's going to try to say things about it which are not peculiar to it, are not going to address what is true of this change and not of another kind of change. He's going to try to speak in a way that will cover all of them at a level of generality. And he takes the example of someone learning music. A man becomes musical. And his first step is to say, you know, there are lots of different ways in which we can express that change. We could say a man becomes musical, we could say the non-musical becomes musical, or we could say, if we've got a lot of time, the non-musical man becomes musical. And we read this and we can wonder, why is he saying this? I mean, are those three changes? No, they're three expressions of the same change. What's the point of them? Aristotle will introduce one further consideration, and then we're going to see he's going to make emerge from this something terribly important. He says, now notice all of these examples, man becomes musical, the non-musical becomes musical, the non-musical man becomes musical, they're all of the form A becomes B. But sometimes when we talk about a change, we say, from A, B comes to B. So we keep that in mind. Now he says this, would it be possible for us to restate each of the original three sentences in which come to us in the A becomes B form to re-express them as from A, B comes to B. And he thinks, well, if you say from a non-musical man, the musical comes to B or a musical man comes to B, yeah, that sounds all right in Greek, it sounds all right in English. If you say from the non-musical, the musical comes to B, that doesn't surprise. But, Aristotle says, if you should say from man, musical comes to B, we might find that a little awkward. Why is that? What this little sense of awkwardness that Aristotle hopes that we will feel, and we do, what it manifests is this. We now can distinguish between the grammatical subjects of sentences which express that change, man, non-musical, non-musical man, the grammatical subject and the subject of the change. And we do that by noting this, the subject of the change is that to which the change is attributed and which survives the change. And of course, that's why we hesitate, or we don't hesitate to say, from the non-musical, musical comes to be. That grammatical subject is not the subject of the change. And we don't hesitate to say, from non-musical man, musical man or musical comes to be, because that grammatical subject is not expressive of the subject of the change. Whereas in the first utterance, the first description, the first expression of the change, man becomes musical, the grammatical subject of the sentence is also expresses the subject of the change, that to which it is attributed the change and which survives the change. So what doesn't survive the change is the negative characterization of the subject prior to the change, non-musical. And what is achieved by the subject as the result of the change is what is expressed by musical. So the change involves minimally, Aristotle says, these three elements, the subject, a privation in the subject, and a new form or determination of that subject. Those are the three minimal requirements for just expressing what a change is. The result of a change will be a complex, a compound of the subject and that new determination, musical, musical man.
It's because of another example that Aristotle used of wood, which from being unshaped comes to be shaped, that the terms matter and form, shape, entered into currency in his thought, and they became kind of the canonical terms for referring to the subject of a change would be its matter, and what the subject achieved as the result of the change would be its form or its shape. So that while shape, form, first of all, would have meant the external contours of a physical object, it came to be used of its temperature, of its place, and so on, and even to talk about that which makes matter to be this kind of substance, a human being, a giraffe, a geranium. The language that emerged from that particular example, then, matter and form, and the third element, the negation, called privation. The Greek terms are hude for matter, morphe for form, and stereosis for privation. But it's because of that particular example of wood, unshaped shape, that the terms matter and form became, as I say, canonical in Aristotelian philosophy. And the initial oddity of referring to the temperature of a thing as its shape or form is overcome because of the controlled application of the term across a number of different kinds of chain, that is, of incidental chain. So there are changes where a human being acquires a capacity, let's say, to play the harmonica. He doesn't come to be as a human being, but as a musician. When someone moves from point A to point B, he doesn't come to be without remainder, but he comes to be here as opposed to be there. When someone comes to be tan when he goes to Florida, he doesn't come to be absolutely speaking, but from being pale, he comes to be tan, and so forth. These are called incidental changes, or accidental changes. These are properties which befall a substance without constituting the substance as a substance. Being musical doesn't make a man to be a man, but to be a musical man. The next step is to apply this kind of analysis to the coming into being of a substance, a substantial chain. Now, Aristotle doesn't undertake to prove that there are such things as substantial changes. He's at the beginning of his inquiry, so what he's going to suggest is we already acknowledge that there are substantial changes. You may not have realized that you did that, but this is what Aristotle means. Do you or do you not think that there are a number of autonomous units in the world around you? Things that are things, not aspects of something else, but things in their own right. Of course you do. Here's a cow, here's a tree, here's your mother-in-law. They're all things, and they're not aspects of something else. That's what we mean by a substance. Is it the case that such things from not having been came into being? And that would be true of all of them. Once Phyto didn't exist, and now he does. And he's frisking around, he's doing all these things, he's acquiring a massive and interesting biography. A time will come when Phyto ceases to be. Okay. So Phyto is a seven. He's a thing. He's not some aspect of something else. And he has this career in time. He comes into being, he ceases to be. He is a substance, he changes in this dramatic way. We are committed to substantial change. So the question now is, to what are we committed in terms of our ability to state what is involved there? 
And what Aristotle does famously is to take the analysis of change that he has built up on various examples of incidental change, change of temperature, of place, of quantity, and so on, and he's developed these terms matter and form for the subject and the new determination of that subject in each of those incidental changes, he will then take that analysis of incidental change and argue by analogy that it applies to what we already agree takes place, namely substantial changes. And what are we going to be able to say that we know, implicitly at least, when we acknowledge that there are substances and that they dramatically come into being and dramatically pass out of being, that there are substantial changes. We will apply, if this is a change, it involves a subject or a matter. If it is a change, it involves a form or a new characterization. But if this is not just another incidental change, but the coming into being of a substance, the matter cannot itself be a substance because then anything that it acquired would merely be an incidental characterization of it. So in order to clarify that, make that clear, Aristotle says, well, let's add a little adjective to matter as it enters into a substantial change, lest we think that it itself is a thing, a substance, and we will call it proto-matter or prime matter. And we will call the form that matter acquires in a substantial change a constitutive form or a substantial form, that which makes it to be and to be what it is. So we can now say of a physical substance, that which has come to be as a result of a change, a substance that has come to be as a result of a change, that it is composed of matter and form. Now, I'm summarizing here things that Aristotle and Thomas spend a great deal of time on in the course of doing natural philosophy. And when they appeal to this, when they're doing metaphysics, they will do it in this more or less summary way in which I am doing it. And what they want is to get on the table this clarified notion of what a substance is what a substance in an undeniable sense of the term is. That is one of the countable units in the world around us. And of those substances, of things, those entities, things that are in this primary sense of are, we can say that they are composed of matter and form. Now, what is the metaphysical move here? So far, all we've done, and all Aristotle has done, all Thomas would have done, is to summarize what we already know about the things around us. He is doing this with a very definite purpose in mind. What he wants to be able to do is to ask whether substance, as we understand it, as applied to physical substance, whether this term substance can be used of non-physical things. That's the whole effort of metaphysics, to take a term which has a meaning which ties it down to the physical and to the material, and to see if that term can be so understood that it will be applicable to things which exist apart from matter and motion. And the procedure that Aristotle follows in the metaphysics is this. He will ask himself, having recalled to himself and to his reader, this conception that a physical substance is composed of matter and form, 
You will say, well, that means substance would have then kind of three meanings, wouldn't it? It would mean the compound, and then we could say the form is substance and the matter is substance, in that they are constituents of the substance, the compound, in the full sense. And we say, okay, we understand that. Then he says this, which of those, form or matter, would be more substance? That's an odd question in a way, but we have to keep in mind why he's asking that kind of question. He's looking in material substance for that which is most important in them in calling them a substance. And what is going to emerge from this analysis is this, it is their form, it is their actuality, it is that which makes them to be and to be the kind of thing they are rather than the stuff out of which they are made which is most important in them, and which is, as he will put it, most substance in them. Now, this is an analysis that takes place, when I'm saying so summarily here, this is something that Aristotle works on over the course of the seventh and eighth books of his Metaphysics, two of the densest and most difficult books, perhaps, of that very difficult work, but books which yield a tremendous satisfaction as we begin to sense what it is that's going on here. And when we do, when we do, we see the theological implications of what he's doing. We see how it fits into metaphysics as having the aim that Aristotle pointed out it had at the beginning of the works on the metaphysic. So that this effort, this seemingly odd question, what in physical substance is more substance, form or matter? And the answer that emerges out of a very long analysis, first of all, of the definition of a substance, is that form is more substance in a physical substance than its matter. So that if you would say of a shoe that it's wooden, that would be a way of designating it. But that's its stuff, the stuff out of which it's made. And if you want to express what it is as a shoe, it's the shape that the wood has taken on as the result of the carving that makes it to be a shoe, not the fact that it's made out of wood. Okay, form is that which is most substance in material substances. What does that do for Aristotle? It gives him a possible way of extrapolating the use of the term substance to express something that exists apart from matter and which now he could characterize as, well, it's substance, but it's substance as form. So that if you had a substance which was just form, on the basis of the analysis that he's already given, not only would it be okay to call it a substance, but given the priority of form, you could say it's more of a substance than a physical substance. Now, we might think that he is thinking of the human soul, which he has argued can exist independently of the body after death. But this, for Aristotle and for Thomas, is only a quasi-substance. Uh, it is not natural for the human soul to exist apart from the body. And that is why, from a Christian perspective, we see the fittingness of the resurrection of the body and the restoration of the human being as a full-fledged human being, body and soul. So the soul would not be a good example for Aristotle, as it would have been for Plato, of a separate substance, that is, a substance that exists separately from form and matter. For him, what we're going to move to on the level of a hierarchy of substances will be a subsistent form, that is, a substance 
for which to be is precisely to be a form, not a form in a matter, but just form. Now you can see what is going on from a linguistic point of view, and we should never lose the sense of the initial oddity of this. Form means initially shape. It's the external contours of a physical object. In the course of his analysis in natural philosophy, Aristotle has applied this in a graded way to determinations in the order of quality and of place, and then ultimately the determination whereby this thing is the kind of thing that it is. So shape has already had a kind of odd career, and we probably have forgotten a bit its initial meaning, and that enables the oddity to go away. But what I ask you now to think of is that as Aristotle makes this move from an analysis of physical substance to an account of substance which could apply to a substance separate from matter and motion, he says what you would have is form, a subsistent form. And it's as if you see, etymologically or from the point of view of the career of the term, you're saying it's a subsisting shape, it's subsisting contour. Now, of course, we know that because of the analysis that we've been at least summarizing here, that by form, he's going to mean that which makes the thing to be what it is. And in the case of a non-physical substance, matter is not going to be a component of what it is. So we see the significance of this appeal to physical substance in an inquiry which seeks to express what substance is in such a way that substance will not include matter and form, matter and motion in its definition. The only way in which Aristotle can get a controlled and significant sense of substance in this new hope-for application to things which exist apart from sensible matter is to take another look at sensible substance and to find that while no sensible substance is such that it could exist otherwise than as a compound of form and matter, even so we can say in that compound what is most important is form. And that's an opening for Aristotle to say now we can launder the term and say now substance is meaning just form is a new meaning of the term. Notice again, if that meaning were meant to apply to physical substances, it doesn't apply. Or it applies only in a kind of oblique way as saying, well, in them form is what is most important, but is not sufficient. What Aristotle is looking for is a term and a meaning for the term that will apply to things the existence of which he is already convinced of namely on the basis of those arguments in natural philosophy. So he's not trying to prove here, notice, the existence of immaterial thing. The assumption of metaphysics, as he understands it, as Thomas understands it, is that we begin the science because we have encountered arguments that make it imperative that we admit that not everything that exists is a material object. In the metaphysics, against that background assumption, we are getting analyses that hope to produce a vocabulary that will be applicable to those things. But it will be a vocabulary which is an extrapolation of terminology which is used, first of all, to talk about physical objects. The term substance isn't a metaphysical term in the sense that it's used, first of all, and obviously, to talk about things that exist apart from matter.
What we have to do is to come up with a extended meaning of the term substance on the basis of a new look at physical substance, an extended meaning which then makes it applicable to the kinds of things that we are primarily interested in talking about in metaphysics. Now this analysis that I'm referring to by Aristotle in the seventh book of the Metaphysics encounters, and he makes it thematic for many of his considerations in that book, it encounters the rival Platonic view, and a view that Aristotle himself had held, and Plato too had been critical of, to this effect that what a thing is, the essential reality of a thing, anything in the world, is something that exists elsewhere. So that if you ask what is the essence of, let's say, a frog, it would be frogness. And this is something that this individual frog, it's not in him, it's somewhere else. And this individual frog is insofar as he imitates this reality that exists and has its habitation elsewhere. That elsewhere reality is what Plato would mean by an idea or a subsistent form. So the things of this world are merely pale imitations of these entities that exist apart and on their own. Now for Aristotle, the difficulties with that position are obvious. If you say that what a man is is not an element or a constituent of this man, but it's someplace else, you seem to have an unacceptable distinction between the thing and what it is. They're two different things. So how can some different thing be what this thing is? So Aristotle works the various difficulties that are involved in that particular position, difficulties which, again, Plato was not unaware of, and it was because, as I've said earlier, of the compelling need to justify claims to knowledge in the strong sense that Plato hung on to this theory even though he articulated more difficulties with it than we can find in Aristotle himself. But Aristotle is dissatisfied with it, as Plato was. It's odd to say that the nature or essence of a particular thing is another thing, and it exists someplace else. So what Aristotle is concerned to argue is that a thing and its essence are one. That a thing and that which makes it to be the thing that it is are one entity, and we're not to be looking elsewhere for its essence or nature or its whatness, quiddity. We get these odd words that begin to show up in the effort to state what is, in one sense, right before the mind, but is, in another sense, elusive. Aristotle has a phrase that he employed, that he invented, to talk about that which makes the thing to be what it is, and he called it the tauti ain ani of the thing, which we can't translate in any way that makes much sense. It would be that which the thing was. What comes through in the Latin is the quiditas, the quiddity, the whatness of the thing, the nature, the essence, and so on. So what we're looking for is that which is constitutive, that which is constitutive of reality. When in his little work on being an essence, Thomas analyzes the various senses of essence, of course, first of all, he's going to talk about the essence of a physical object. And the essence is that which is expressed in the definition of a thing. The definition of a physical object is going to have to include form and matter. So if we're going to talk about essence in some other sense, we're going to have to work off of essence in this for us, 
controlling and more obvious then, just as with the notion of substance. So what Aristotle's seemingly obvious claim is going to be is that Socrates and man, humanity, that which makes him to be a man, are one thing, as opposed to the Platonic view that a thing and its essence differ. But that poses a problem for Aristotle of a kind that is inescapable, and that is this. If man expresses what Socrates is, then it seems impossible to say that Socrates is identical with man in the way that Aristotle is inclined to want to say. That is, the thing and its essence or its nature are one. For the obvious reason that Xantippe is human as well. Plato is a man. Socrates is a man. If to be a man and to be Socrates were one and the same thing, then of course to be Socrates and to be Plato would be one and the same thing, which is of course counterintuitive. So we are caught here in a bit of an oddity. Aristotle finds himself having to his satisfaction, and I think to any readers, shown that there's something very strange about claiming that the essence or nature of a thing is another thing than the thing whose essence it is and it exists elsewhere. Having dealt with that and rendered it fairly implausible, Aristotle has to, is confronted with the fact that in some sense at least, he has to acknowledge that a thing and its essence are not identical. Because if they were, then the individual sharing the same nature would have to be identical with one another. There wouldn't be many individuals, there would merely be one. And that is a reductio ad absurdum. So there's something that we have to be able to say here in terms of the way in which, the way in which the individual substance is not the same as its essence, even though its essence is not something that exists elsewhere. What we confront here, then, is what, through the history of philosophy, has come to be called the problem of universals. And it is one that was formulated, first off, by a Neoplatonic and anti-Christian philosopher named Porphyry. And Porphyry, in the course of pondering and commenting on and explaining the logical works of Aristotle, the categories of Aristotle, is a work in which Aristotle says that the most universal predicates of anything are substance, quantity, quality, place, position, and so on. He comes up with 10 categories. Porphyry, when he is about to explain the contents of that book of the categories of Aristotle, writes a little introduction to it, an isagoge, an introduction to the categories of Aristotle. And in it he says, I want to put before you a number of universals, the knowledge of which is necessary if you're going to understand the categories of Aristotle. He says, what I want to talk to you about in this little introduction are genus, species, property, accident, and difference. These are the five universals that Porphyry talks about in the Isagoge. But prior to taking them up, he says something that was absolutely fateful for the history of medieval philosophy and indeed for the history of philosophy as such. And that is this. Porphyry, a Neoplatonist, is aware of the difference between Plato and Aristotle on the existence in or existence apart of the nature or essence of things. So he says about genus, species, and these universals, there is a very difficult question 
that can be raised. And I'm going to raise it, but I'm not going to answer it because it's just too difficult to take up in a preliminary work like this. And you could imagine what happened when this work came into the hands of later teachers. Here was a problem that was said to be too difficult to be discussed, not too difficult for me. And so they would give an explanation of this problem. And the problem was, in effect, the problem of universals. And it consists of three questions, as Porphyry sets it down. Are universals figments of the imagination, or are they real? If they are real, are they immaterial or material? If they are immaterial, do they exist apart, or are they associated with material objects? Those three questions are the problem of universals. So the problem of universals turns out to be three questions. And as I say, throughout the early Middle Ages, commentary after commentary was written on this little introduction of Porphyry, and theory after theory was advanced as to how those three questions could be answered. And out of this came a variety of accounts of the status of universal. And we want to say something about that now because it emerges out of the question that we saw haunting Aristotle after he has, to his satisfaction and ours, shown that it makes no sense to say that what a thing is is an entity other than that thing and it exists somewhere else. There is nonetheless a need to make a distinction between the thing and its essence on penalty of saying that all individuals of a given kind are identical to one another. So how does Aristotle handle that? The question itself suggested to me, and this is not idiosyncratic, the problem of universals. And so I introduced the problem of universals by taking a kind of detour around to Porphyry and mentioning how the three questions that he enunciated, which make up the problem of universal, started a long industry, we might say, of developing accounts of, well, what the status of a genus, a species, and so forth is. Now, the way in which we can express the problem, this is the way Thomas does in the little work on being in essence, is to think of three sentences. Man is rational, man is seated, and man is a species. Those are all ordinary English sentences. And about them, however, we would probably want to say somewhat different things. For example, if man is a species and Socrates is a man, would we want to say that Socrates is a species? In the way in which, if we say, well, if man is rational and Socrates is a man, Socrates is rational. There the predicate seems to travel in a way in which it did not in the first case, where although it's true to say that man is a species, and it's true to say that Socrates is a man, we would hesitate to say that Socrates is a species. In much the same way as we would hesitate to say that just because man is seated is true, and Socrates is a man, that it would follow that man is seated. He might not be the man who is seated. So there's a hesitancy that we have in a kind of trickle-down of the use of the term species from man to Socrates, who is a man, that is similar to our hesitancy in moving from the truth, as it may be, that a man is seated or man is seated, to Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is seated. There's an incidental connection between what it is to be a man and to be seated 
that leads us not to want to say, just because a man is seated and Socrates is a man, he's got to be that man who is seated. Whereas we would say again, man is rational, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is rational. Now it's by linking the assertion that man is a species to man is seated, it's more like that, than it's like man is rational, that Thomas is able to come up with an account of universal. To say of man that man is a species is to say what? What is a species? Well, what is the definition that Porphyry gave? It's this, a species is something one that is predicated of many numerically different things. What is a genus? A genus is something one that is predicated of many specifically different things. So a universal, universally speaking, not just genus, species, difference, accident, property, is something one that is predicated of many. So when we say that man is a species, we mean that man or humanity is something one that is predicated of many individuals. But it is not true of each of these individuals that there's something one that are predicated of many things. So something noteworthy is going on when we attribute species to man that is very different from what is going on when we say that man is rational. And as I said, Thomas likens man is a species to man is seated, in our original examples, rather than to man is rational. And what was it that we observe about the truth of man is seated? If that proposition is true, it's not true because of just what a man is. In order to be a man, you have to be seated. No, a man can be seated or standing or lying down or maybe in any number of different postures. So if a human being is seated, it is not something that follows on what he is, is not part of his nature or essence. It is incidental to a person or an individual having such a nature that this characteristic should be true of him. So to be seated is not part of what it means to be a man. Whereas to be rational is, of course, part of the definition that we would give of a man. So the difference between the incidental and the essential the per se and the per oxidon, as Thomas would put it, gives us a way of understanding what we already recognized in the difference between man is rational and man is seated. That's the way to see or to understand what we're doing when we say that man is a species, Thomas said. Think of man is seated. Think of that as the kind of model. To say of human nature that it is a species is to say something that happens to it, that befalls it. It is incidental and not constitutive of human nature. If it were constitutive of human nature to be a species, then, of course, man is a species, Socrates is a man, would entail Socrates as a species. It's because it doesn't that we become aware, Thomas is suggesting, that to be a species is only incidentally related to the nature. Now, when it's true to say that a man is seated, this incidental truth is true because some particular individual man is now sitting down. So it's because some singular individual, some material individual of the type is doing something that it can be said to be true of the type, though not essentially so, but only incidentally. 
It's true of man that he is seated, not because it's part of what it is to be a man, but because this man is seated. Now, to what can we appeal when we say that to be a species is incidentally related to human nature? This is where Thomas' distinctive account comes in. He said, look, human nature as something one, as a unit, which is predicable of many things, that is something that is the result, the product of our understanding. This is an abstract consideration of human nature. Human nature as it exists is in this individual, that individual, the other individual. But we, in having experience of those individuals, by dint of what he takes understanding to be, we grasp what is common to those individuals. And we express that which is common to them. We have an idea of it. We conceptualize it. So the unit is in the order, in the conceptual order. It is in our mind. Not what we are thinking of, but thinking of it in such a way that it is something one over and above the individuals in which that content exists or is found. Given that presence in the mind of this one concept that covers all of these individuals, we can reflect on the fact that that unit can be predicated of, is true of, each of those individuals. And that's what we notice is going on when we have such universal terms, as we say, as man, animal, and green, and spider, and the like. That these are terms which are predicably common to many individual things. If we take the content, the meaning of the term, what it is to be a human being, there is nothing predicable about that as such. To be predicated is not part of the definition of what it is to be a man, for the reasons we saw at the outset. We don't move from man as a species and Socrates as a man to Socrates as a species. This is what Thomas is analyzing. And he is saying what universality involves is something one that is said of many. The something one is one thanks to our mode of knowing. The relationship of predicability of universality of that unit or one to many individuals is something that follows on our mode of knowing. And it is incidental to the nature as known. Just as to be seated is incidental to the nature as it is found in this particular individual. This account of universality then enables Thomas and Aristotle to say, yeah, there is a sense in which a thing and its essence are not one. There is a sense in which a thing and its essence are not one. There is a discrepancy between what we say of Socrates and what we say of Plato and Plato as such or Socrates as such. They're individual and this nature as we understand it is abstracted from these individuating characteristics. But to think of that nature as predicable of many is to think of it not in terms of something that enters into the definition, as if to be a man included to be predicable of many, but given the content of human nature, rational animal, there can accrue to it a relation of reason, a relation of predicability. And this is what universality is. This is also a way of seeing what, for Thomas, logic is. 
Logic is precisely these piggyback relations that are established by us as we know reality. And the biggest mistake we could make is to confuse our mode of knowing things with the mode in which they exist. This is not a Kantian view which would maintain that the only way we can know things is as we know them. We can distinguish between properties that belong to things as we know them, to be a species, to be universal, and what belongs to the natures as such, rationality, risibility, and so forth. So this discussion of the problem of universal is important within the development of the metaphysics, but it has these other ramifications that my aside suggests. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.